it's the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct series, the genre-defining police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 16. It's 1962, and we're going to find out what the meaning of like love is. Ism? <laughs> like loveism. Ism. It's isn't nine... it? Isn't it though? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I got through that. The problem was I hadn't written that down. I got as far as the last bit and thought, and suddenly I was reading the introduction from last week's show, which worked fine until I tried to work in "like love" as a phrase, but it doesn't really work as a phrase <laughs> on its own like that. I think we'll probably have a chat about the title to yeah. this. Anyway, I'm joined as usual by my uh, compatriots, Mr. Stephen Royston. Good evening. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. And we'll explore this tale of sadness, of drama, of one word being misspelled, and all sorts. But first, as usual, I will do a little bit of a roundup of some things I found out about the time in which the book was written. I did do a load in the last episode, which was another book from 1962 about the general music and stuff. But I always like to, if it's a second half of the year book, have a look around Christmas time. Have a look what was going on in the, uh, you know, the second part of the year and in the sort of Christmas charts. Any guesses on who's in the charts at Christmas in 1962? So far, it's more or less been the same people. I always say the shadows. Well, they might be, but they're certainly not in the top three. Either here or America. Ah, right. So are we we talking UK charts? We We can talk the UK charts if you want. Not, not that that helps me at all because I still have no idea. It's more or less the same answer every time. We Elvis. Do. It's Elvis as number one in at Christmas, he, with the Return to Sender, oh, right. which so at least is one I know this time. It's a good one, yeah. The uh, number two is Love Sick Blues by Frank Ifield. I don't actually know that Frank Ifield song. I wonder if that's the Hank Williams song. It might, might well might be. be. That wouldn't surprise me for Frank Ifield yeah, to be covering it'd, Hank it'd, Williams. It is fit, I think. But number three, this is an interesting one. Oof. How could I? How can I get this across? Get you to guess what this might be? He is slash was an entertainer. Rolf Harris. It's Rolf Harris. No <laughs> way. You went straight in there. It's only because we were talking about Animal Hospital the other night. Oh yes, because I found a trailer for Animal Hospital Down Under on a video cassette from 1996 <laughs> that I was watching. Might be the last last copy that exists in the world that. But it was Sun Arise by Rolf oh, Harris. As later covered uh, by Alice Cooper. Oh, yes, of course, Alice Cooper <laughs> covered it, didn't he? Seriously. Yeah, on the Delivered to Death album. Tremendous. It's an odd one, isn't it? Because it's supposedly an Aboriginal-sounding thing, but I think it's just an original song. It's not a, some tribal thing mm. or anything like that at all. For listeners who don't know who Rolf Harris is, he was a singer, a performer and an artist who made, he was from Australia, but he made his career in the UK in the, uh, started in the late 50s, early part of the 60s with a few songs. And he was well known to our generation because he presented a thing called Rolf's Cartoon Club. And he used to show the cartoons in the little gaps between programmes as well, talk about them and uh, do drawings from them. The less said about the later part of his career, the better. You can look him up if you want, but, yeah, he had a number three single. Well, it was number three at Christmas in 1962, anyway, Sun Arise. Very didgeridoo and wobbleboard heavy. Oh, absolutely. Elvis didn't get to number one at Christmas in America. He was number two. 
and number one was Big Girls Don't Cry by The Four Seasons. Oh, tremendous. Number three was Bobby's Girl by Marcy Blaine. Oh, classics. Yes, all little nice little songs there, quite bouncy and uplifting. Of course, there was a big celebrity death in 1962 in the second half of the year. Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, Marilyn Monroe. She died in the August of that year. In uh, science and other events, Crick, Wilkins and Watson got the Nobel Prize for discovering or talking about DNA. I'm not actually sure they discovered it. I think it was just their findings were... Oh, were pivotal. The ones, pivotal, that won them the prize anyway. Okay. And, uh, which is interesting because we're doing a crime series of books which has got loads of forensics in it, but at this point DNA doesn't enter into it in the slightest. Absolutely. I wonder when it actually did take effect, really, was it? Would it be 70s, 80s? Or would it be the 80s, would it? Late 80s? I would assume so. Yeah. It's not something that you see uh, Quincy concerning himself about, is it, really? No, not, not really. Even, yeah, even the FBI, I don't think, would have been even used in the 70s. No, it, it was probably prohibitively expensive yeah. for a long, long, long time. I imagine so, and a very sort of time-consuming process probably at the time. I would say last, 80s, yeah. yeah. Unlike now where you can send off you know, a tub of your spit to a company that will tell you everything about yourself and your ancestors and stuff. Yeah, DNA and mobile phones have made crime rubbish, haven't they? Really? <laughs> The crime or the crime detection. <laughs> well, you know, you choose your side. <laughs> Let's have a look at film and TV. Uh, James Bond film premiered in October, Doctor No. Oh, indeed. That was the first one, wasn't it? It, it was, yes. Yeah. And we also had the film of Day of the Triffids, the Howard Keel film, which always used to be on TV when we mm-hmm. were growing up. I used to love that, that film of Day <laughs> of the Triffids. But I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone, but I can't avoid saying Carry this. on. Uh, there wasn't a film. That, that could have, uh, there wasn't a carry-on film to mention in this thing. No. Not an actual released one, but I did want to mention something that could have been released that was meant to have been made the year before was a film called Carry On Astronaut. Whoa. That would have been a bold move for, like, 1961, given that we hadn't even got to the moon yet. I was going to say <laughs> Kenneth Connor on the moon. <laughs> He could have been the first man on the moon. <laughs> Imagine they had like a massive budget and they actually went to the moon to film it. So they beat the Russians yeah. and they beat the Americans. That's it. Yeah, the That'd British government couldn't do anything, but uh, yeah, Talbot Rothwell had enough money to produce a film where he sent Kenneth Connor to the moon. That'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Lance Bernard Percival, Bre- second man on the moon. Bernard Breslau could be like a... A Martian monster coming out of some moon cave to... A Martian monster on the moon. Yeah. <laughs> he was on holiday, wasn't he? Oh. I hate to get bogged down in technicalities. That'd be amazing. But then, of course, Bernard Breslau did play a Martian monster because he played an ice warrior in yeah, Doctor Who. He did. Which were a race of baddies from Mars. So, it, you so... know, and they laugh like that. So it all ties in, really. It does, If yeah. only it had been made. Carry on, astronaut. Elsewhere in the world, there was the Orson Welles version of Kafka's The Trial. Oh, I've still not seen that. I've never seen that. I'd like to see it. It's got Anthony Perkins in Mm. as Joseph Kay. It seems like an excellent bit of casting, that, I think. And elsewhere, King Kong versus Godzilla. (laughs) Excellent. A good team up there, I think. I've not seen King Kong versus Godzilla. Have you seen it, Morgan? I definitely have. I think King Kong, far from his uh, stop-motion roots, is... Very definitely a fella in a gorilla suit. But that's okay, it doesn't detract from your fun. No. Who wins? Whoever Godzilla. wins, we lose. <laughs> Godzilla must have 
You'd think Godzilla would win, but you know I haven't got that information to hand. I haven't seen a Godzilla film for donkey's years. I just thought it'd be interesting as well just to mention a few books that were around at the time, because obviously there's lots and lots and lots, and I couldn't possibly mention them all. But if we're talking about you know crime fiction and what's going on, it's interesting to look at what's what else is going on out there, because I think it's an interesting point where there is still tipping over from a lot of established authors from the 30s, 40s, 50s, etc., into a more modernist sort of set of literature. So some that I spotted that were out in that year was uh, Clockwork Orange. Uh There was um, the fictions by George Louis Borges. Absolutely love that stuff, and I know I've pronounced it wrong. Sorry, everyone. Borges, possibly. I I can never get it right. Yeah, maybe. There was uh, stuff by Ken Kesey... There was The Ipcress File, so that's a very sort of a more modern spy type thing than some of the old type of stuff. But we've still got things like um, Agatha Christie writing The Mirror Crack from side to side. So she's still writing at this point, and that really ties a lot of crime fiction backwards into the Uh established things. And so it's an interesting point where you've got the old school writers dominating as well as all these newer sort of the ones who have come through the 1950s got very forward-looking, very interesting and weird way of exploring stories. But all the while, we've still got good old Ed McBain, well, good young Ed McBain, well, relatively speaking at this been. point, writing his stuff such as Like Love. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll tell you what, though. We were talking about true crime before we started this podcast, and perhaps we'll mention that maybe in the uh, bonus episode, <laughs> the reason I put a question mark at the end of that. I did find a nice little true crime story. Are you sitting comfortably? Uh, I am, yeah. Yeah, We're in our comfortable chairs this time, aren't we? We We moved across the room to the comfy seats (laughs) because it's so warm. In 1962, a man called George Wright was indicted for murder. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison, but he escaped. So basically, George Wright and some accomplices were going around robbing motels and gas stations... Um, they killed a guy called Walter Patterson, who was a World War II veteran, and they, they got $70 from him. So it's a ludicrous thing. He didn't mean to kill him, but the threats spiralled over and he ended up killing him. So they got caught. But after seven and a half years of his sentence, apparently um, Wright and three others that he knew in jail, they just walked out. <laughs> the guards were doing bed checks and they were like, oh, the Doors are all open. Let's just leave. So they did. Two years later, disguised as a priest, using an alias of Reverend Larry Darnell Burgess and concealing a handgun in a hollowed-out Bible, Brilliant. he and his accomplices hijacked a plane from Detroit to Miami. And then in Miami, they demanded that FBI agents, and this is brilliant, FBI agents dressed only in bathing suits <laughs> delivered $1 million ransom to them on the plane, and the FBI complied with that. So they released the passengers then, got them to send them an international navigator, and they got the plane flown to Algiers, where they claimed asylum. Wow. (laughs) So there's a lot going on in this story already for the sad loss of, you know, this this veteran's life has spiralled into an escape, a hijacking, a million-dollar heist, a claim of political (laughs) asylum. The one thing is the Algerian government confiscated the the $1 million, but they let them have asylum. Mm. So they sent the million dollars back. But the the hijackers all went to to France, where some of them were caught in France. But um, every time any of them were caught, extradition was refused. 
So basically, George Wright was finally arrested in, in 2011 <laughs> in Portugal, but he was now a Portuguese citizen, and so he, he hasn't been extradited. It's amazing. So that's just an absolutely mad true crime story. Mm, so there wow. you go. That was quite interesting, that, I think. Which has its <laughs> origins in 1962. It does indeed. Bronchi. You'd thought that would have been a film that you'd all know about, wouldn't you? Yeah, really. There was yeah, a lot of hijackings it... in the 60s, I think. Mm. It seemed it's... to be a thing that happened, because there was a lot of comedy sketches would be about like planes being hijacked and stuff. Take this plane to Cuba, etc. Mm. So clearly it was the thing to do. Yeah, apparently so, yeah. Right, one last, one last little bit of uh, trivia of the time. In 1962... An American advertising man called Martin K. Spector inter- invented a punctuation symbol called the Interrobang, <laughs> which was a combination of a punctuation mark and a question mark, used for the occasions when you'd normally just put an exclamation mark and a question mark. <laughs> a terrorbang. Interrobang. You were. I'm not making it up. <laughs> I want to see what. Okay. It looks. It looks doubtful. It's just an. It's just an exclamation marks stuck through the middle of a question mark. <laughs> Looks quite messy, like you've hit two typewriter keys at once. Yeah, there's a band called that. I wonder if they've used that as, as their logo. It would make sense. You'd have thought so. Yeah. Unless they've arrived at that name by some other bizarre <laughs> means, and I don't want to know. Coincidence. <laughs> okay, you, that Stevo is silently confirming that it exists, and I'm not just dreamt this mad thing <laughs> up. Right. After a quarter of an hour of nonsense, let's get <laughs> stuck into the actual Ed McBain book. <laughs> General impressions first, and I'll give you some background on it that I found. Any thoughts? Because the last one we did was a compilation of short stories, mm. three novelettes, if mm. you will. And what was the one prior to that? It was See Them Die, was it? Oh, uh, oh get me, get me order wrong, am I? I think you're right. I'm yeah, very, I think I'm right. My memory's very poor for remembering uh, got all, me a little all list of things. Of course it was... No, it wasn't. It was Lady, Lady, I Did It. Ah, there we of are. course, yes. No, it's 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 very much getting back into the sort of um, sort of meat of the procedural kind of element of things, isn't it? It's, it's uh, yeah. There's a lot of that. It's down to brass tacks, kind of proper police work. It is, I think, because that last book with the three novelettes, good as they were as stories individually, they felt very abbreviated in in terms of the eighty seventh precinct Definitely, series. Yeah. What about you, Steve? How yeah, no, you... I was just thinking. Yeah, the um, yeah, very much the procedural. Phoning up and speaking to the lab and all that's quite the very forefront of this, yeah, and the diagrams and the there's a, a lot of like yeah footwork of going out and interviewing people, yeah, going to interview somebody else, then going back to interview. Yeah, so and we, get, we get reports and floor plans and all kinds of things. Just to it's like he's kind of re-underlining that kind of. Yeah, sort of, re-establishing it. Yeah, it, yeah, it's had a little bit echoes. Just thinking about it, like the earlier ones again, in terms of the you know a bit of a crime of uh, crime of passion. The, yeah, crime of the heart, wasn't it really? Huh. Yes, in a, in a way, and then a bit of a, a kind of a, a, a another where it starts with another, well, a suicide that kind of comes back later in the book as well, doesn't yeah. it? Which you. You know, you're kind of always wondering whether it, that's actually got something directly to do with the later crime. You know, it kind of, you know. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, threads left dangling. You're not sure are going to be uh, sort of re-explored at any point. But yeah. I'll give you a little bat. A little bat. I'll give you a little bat. <laughs> Here's this little bat. <laughs> yours is a cricket bat, Stevo. Morgan, yours is actually just a bat. Oh, that's nice. I'll give you a little bit of background 
Right. even on the publishing of this. So the first hardcover hardcover edition in America was Simon and Schuster, as they have been for a while. There was a perma book edition in the following year. And the first UK edition was published by Hamish Hamilton, which is a new name in the in the mix oh. of publishers we've had over here. We've moved away from TV Boardman and suddenly it's being published by Hamish Hamilton. Hamish Hamilton exists as an imprint of Penguin now. It was originally founded in 1931, and it had loads of authors in the UK, like um, Raymond Chandler, Thurber, Salinger, Capote, Sartre, Simenon, Nancy Mitford, John Dixon Carr, so loads of names of quite big crime writers and the like. But I found out a very interesting fact about this. The, The Hamilton in it is a guy called Jamie Hamilton, there's quite a lot of background on him. He seems like what you might term a character, possibly. <laughs> he is described as a man capable of intense friendship and also, quote, intense hatred for his enemies and would refuse <laughs> to enter a room if someone he disliked was there. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Sounds fun. Sounds a great way of doing business, doesn't yep. it? Uh, Raymond Chandler was to become a close friend of Jamie, relying on him greatly in his dark periods of depression. Depression? Depression. I'm trying really hard. It's so hot. It's just (laughs) depressionary period. Yeah. I don't want to make light of anyone's depression, but there. Depression sounds almost like it's a relief. (laughs) Like it's got the word fresh in the middle. I'm sorry about that. His depression. He was also befriended by Vince, the ferocious warehouse manager with whom he went on serious drinking sprees whenever he was in London. (laughs) A warehouse manager? I assume he's a warehouse manager cool. for Hamish Ham- Hamilton. <laughs> wonder what he was called. Well, I mean, just, maybe he called Stuart. Stuart, we're off on the lash. Well, he was called Vince. Oh, Vince, was he? he oh, right. Oh, right. <laughs> he was known as Stuart. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> nah, I refuse to accept he was called Vince. I think that's uh, no an erroneous fact. And he was actually called... Well, he could be called Vince Stewart. Perhaps um, Stuart's surname. Yeah, absolutely. So he went out on the... Um, on the sesh with old uh, Stuart, did he? <laughs> well, anyway, they've started publishing the 87th Precinct hardbacks in in the UK, so TV Boardman out of the picture now. Which is a shame, that bloodhound in his hat will be Aww. no more. Uh, Hamilton sold the firm to the Thompson organisation in 65, who resold it to Penguin Books in 1986. Oh. Like Love, the story we're discussing was originally published in Argosy magazine in a shortened version. I don't think it was one of these short stories he made longer. I think it was just an abridged version that was published in Argosy magazine. Argosy magazine from August 1962, in fact. And we talked about Argosy in the, with the last ones as well. I'm going to pass the Argosy magazine contents, which I've, I've highlighted one thing on it that I think Steve-O would like to look. It's number 34 in the list of things mm-hmm. in that issue of Argosy magazine. Because if it wasn't the Argos magazine, like, <laughs> or, it, like massive, all the pages laminated... So what's number Argosy. Thir- what, what, right. Number 34 in that episode of Argosy magazine. Oh, so contents, right. So we, I see what I see now. Yeah, we've got uh, Like Love on page 130. <laughs> <laughs> page 34. I think that's something to do with the cover there. Because on the cover, there is a lion that looks like it's kind of mauling somebody. But on page 34 is I Hypnotise Lions by <laughs> Peter Mitchellmore. Illustrated by Richard Hewitt. Well, there you go. Brilliant. Page 40, Don't Sail with O'Rourke. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I would, if I could have found a copy that I could afford to buy on eBay, I certainly would have bought it. Move over, Liz. 
There's all sorts of things in oh, there. This is the God. stuff that men like to read in those Campfires, days. page 121. Oh, it's only two pages long. Perhaps right? it's just instruction for how to make a campfire. Possibly. It's in the cards. Canasta. No more arguments. This is all compelling stuff. I was just, I was taken by I hypnotise lions. Yeah. It's like, how do you find out that you can hypnotise lions? You You'd have to learn very quickly. <laughs> you and your car. This magazine looks bloody amazing. Yeah, well, it's a shame it doesn't exist now. The sky above, the mud below. Oh. <laughs> Oof, that sounds rugged. It does, it sounds very much in the... Um, What's his name who wrote that book that that film is based on? I've oh, just, that one, yeah. yeah. Put rum in it. <laughs> just. I think he's still reading the content, so I'm not sure. <laughs> I've got a bit, that's a 20 bit of vocal pa- That's 20 pages long, <laughs> just, that. How to improve various things at the bottom of each page, just put rum in it. Put rum in it by Bruce Pendleton. That's not still about how to look after your car, is it? Bruce Pendleton of the American Rum Council. <laughs> well... Flight 266 is missing, exclamation mark. Should have one of those. In uh, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> flight 266 is missing? Perhaps that was the flight that was hijacked. Yeah. Well, this together. looks like a, an amazing... I've, I've not even mentioned half of them here, but... Well, moving on, <laughs> before we get into another listing exercise. Obviously, what's happened now is the 87th Precinct TV series has come and gone now. It's finished to be no more. So this book's arrived too late to have been adapted for it. So we're, it's, we're out of that now. I mean, reading this, what did you think about its potential for it being a TV story or a film story? Oh, perfect. It would be perfect for uh, television wouldn't it? I don't think they would have done it at the time, and certainly they wouldn't have done it anyway like it actually is. That it would have been definitely, yeah... There wouldn't have been an explosion, would there? It would have been made a lot more family-friendly, I think, uh, for TV at the time. For for a movie, I could see it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. so an, an hour-and-a-half, two-hour movie rather than a 55-minute TV yeah, thing, you so. could imagine it. They took more chances in the movies as well. But the first chapter is is literally the pre-credits scene, isn't it? Mm. That's like a proper... There's two, there's two cliffhangers. Well, not cliffhangers. There's two drama points in the first chapter which is amazing. It just hits straight away with, with two amazing things to really yeah. keep you intrigued. There's, there's none of the usual kind of scene setting or a little description of the weather or the city. It's like right in. Yeah, that's it. this book, if there's missing one thing from the McBain bingo card thing, it's an extended description of the city as of a the woman. Cl- the climate. <laughs> or, or the climate. Yeah, you normally... Like it's got it. bits and pieces you, of it. You in, get a little bit of it, yeah. But not lots of it. Like, you you know, some of the books have got like two or three whole pages talking about it, setting the scene. It's all right. It's very, very warm in this room and in general at the moment. So it's like we're living one of the city descriptions <laughs> mm. as we're here. So if you hear the wafting sound, it's all of us fanning ourselves like <laughs> delicate southern bells. But it's odd to have one chapter that has like. Half of the chapter is one scene with a dramatic ending, mm. and half of the chapter is another scene with a dramatic ending. They feel like two small chapters. Perhaps you consider them too small to separate out as different Possibly, different yeah. numbered chapters. And then it definitely is. There should there should just be a page that says opening credits between <laughs> yeah. chapter one and chapter two, because one of the first things that happens is a salesman gets blown to smithereens. Mm. 
Which, Quite gruesome, that uh, scene. Yeah. yeah, and the description of them picking up the bits afterwards, really. Burnt human flesh roaring into the air and down the stairwell. Spring nice. is really here, yeah. It's a powerful opening. Yeah. So let's get stuck into some of the bits and pieces of this. One of the weirdest things, I think, about this is, is the very first thing that happens is Corella's talking down someone who's on a window ledge threatening to jump, a, a woman who's threatening to jump, or a girl, really. It's a bit weird how he attempts to get her to come off the window ledge. Mm-hmm. It's I'm not sure it, I f- fully buy it as a true Corella thing, but what, it, do, you, what do you make of it? It does really? seem a bit out of character uh, for him. Yeah, I don't know. It seems strange for him to kind of lose his patience with her a bit and... But I think it, it, it does say that he, he's sort of... He's completely convinced himself that she's not going to jump, hasn't he? So he's trying reverse psychology yeah. on her. <laughs> Which <laughs> backfires terribly. Yes. Which is amazing, because Andy Parker's there with him, who of anyone who you'd think would tell someone to jump off a window ledge would be Andy Parker. But he's just in the background faking a phone call to uh, try and get her to come into her apartment. Yeah, yeah, it does seem a bit out of character, really. But a lot of... seem that asked about it, though, either, does he, really? I know, well. it's funny, really. A lot of this book is about setting up the mood of the the, the cops in it, mm. really. So Corella is carrying that with him, but he doesn't really overdwell on it. There's a bit mm. of a chat between him and, and Cotton Hawes about it at some mm. point. Yeah. Of course, it does come back to bite him later on. There's quite a, a lot in this book about the mood of the cops, particularly Bert Kling, who doesn't have a major role in this book. Mm. But we basically find out that since the death of uh, what's her face, Claire Townsend, he's turned into an absolute git. You know, <laughs> understandably so as it may be, but he's become someone that no one likes working with because he's just he's snappy. He, he's always spoiling for a fight. He's not particularly pleasant to be around, and so Cotton Horse gets a lot of the time and attention that Bert Kling would once have had in these stories. Mm. Yeah. Cotton Hawes is the main the main cop, I would say, even more involved than Corella. Uh, He's certainly the the, the key to solving what gets solved, isn't he? So, and um, there's a little bit of extra background about him. And again, I like this McBain thing of, of dropping in a few little extra bits into the okay. description. So this time we find out that when he was uh, doing his his service in the navy, he was on a, a PT boat in Japan which is a patrol torpedo boat, and the implication seems to be that he had it quite cushy in mm. in that particular role in the in the Navy because he wasn't in the trenches in somewhere like Italy or something like that. He was actually on a one of these quite nice, neat... <coughs> See, my voice is going again. That's terrible. Oh, dear. Drying up. Apologies, everyone. He's one of these yeah nice vessels where he's away from the thing that he's actually attacking. He's, he's long-range attacks. One of these nippy little patrol boats sort of implying that that's like his old precinct where he was sort of being mm. a bit looked after a bit cosseted as well. But they find in the apartment that blows up in the next scene, killing the salesman, they find two bodies in the act of what looks like love, which is a phrase that crops up in several places, several ways. And it looks like they have committed suicide because there's a note. Whiskey. Mm. Yeah, gas. The gas that's caused the explosion, basically. Most of the book is spent with them deciding whether or not it's actually a, a crime that they can pursue, whether it's just a suicide or whether it's something else. It's just that niggling thing that keeps them investigating throughout. 
Yeah, they never really, for the majority of the book, they've never any evidence. They just, yeah, it just there's, doesn't there's, feel right. There's enough yeah. lingering doubt yeah. for them to keep um, keep hacking away at it. Yeah, and yeah. in fact, in their attempts to get evidence, Corella starts to really get on Lieutenant Sam Grossman's nerves <laughs> because at the start he does his job as re- required by a potential murder does all the exploration of the stuff that they found at the apartment, returns all the information. But then later on, Corella brings him loads and loads of tablets to analyse, and he ends up having a falling out with him. Yeah. And a reconciliation yeah. as well. But it's really interesting to see the banter switch from sort of very, very, very pally in the early part of the book and to a point where there's a very good phrase. I've got it written down here somewhere. I imagine I've written it in capital letters somewhere, but now I can't find it, of course. He sends him about uh, 14 jars of uh, sleeping tablets <laughs> yeah. and Grossman's like, what the hell do you want me to do with these? Yeah, he's not very, very pleased. Well, he's clutching at the straws at Oh, that I point. found it. The way Grossman sums up his feelings about what the tablets could indicate that Corella's trying to get him to... <laughs> to explore is that it could indicate balls. <laughs> That's Grossman's professional response, is that yep. it, it could indicate balls. Well, there it is, yeah. It's rather Excellent. heated. But there's, there's loads of stuff about the toxicology and things like that, hmm. so the, the person who's doing the, t- the toxicology is using the, the Van Slyke determination, <clears throat> and that was named after Donald Dexter Van Slyke, who was a toxicologist. He's also using, to try and work out alcohol levels in the blood, the Gettler and Tiber method. And a a quick bit of research on that, I'm not going to go into much detail, revealed a Wikipedia page which linked to something, a group called the Gettler Boys, (laughs) which was just a group of well-known toxicologists. Amazing. Mm. It's like, imagine being so good at being toxicologists that you get a nickname like the (laughs) Gettler Boys. Who do we need? Call for the Gettler Boys. Either that or they're a close harmony group in their time off. <laughs> Amazing, because uh, the the uh, the other um, the actual me- names of the methods both sound more like sort of seventies prog rock bands. I think. <laughs> yeah, the, the Van Slyke determination. Oh. <laughs> what would their albums be like? I've definitely got a couple of them sitting around at home somewhere. Yeah. I'm sure. They, they supported Van de Graaff generator. <laughs> yeah. Van de Graaff generator. Yeah, opened by opened for by Van Slyke determination. With their four-disc concept album. I'm imagining them sounding a bit like Tangerine Dream. They'll almost definitely sound exactly like Tangerine Dream. Yeah, maybe with a hint of gong around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's, no, it's, uh, it's good. Yeah, so they go out and interview everyone once, twice. Three, and two. then they end up canning the case, don't they? More point. or less. Yeah, they, they sort of... Goes in the open hands file. are hovering over the open file a few times. Mm. I think it goes. And then eventually it goes in. It's unusual to see them, the cops of the 87th, effectively giving up on a case, but it, it's... Must happen. It must happen. Yeah, because they do that, and then actually another case opens. In, at the, well, it's in Chapter 14. Yeah, We quite... have a chapter with a, a, a new bodies mm. being found in a, in a park. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite odd, that, really. I can't think whether he's done that in any other... Like, a totally new case starting. But uh, certainly not a new case closed. It just well, it just yeah. peters out. It just, it as just shows you that life goes on and there's always new stuff coming in, I suppose. So, Although it's an interesting little sequence, that, when they when they go and find this body in the park and they're speaking to a, um, an eyewitness, which is an elderly uh, 
Oh, yeah. Gentleman called Mr. Coluzzi, who's Italian. He starts speaking to Corella in Italian, which Corella's like, for the benefit of horse, why don't you, my, my colleague Cotton, why didn't you speak in English? But that's very much like Evan Hunter's life. His mm. family was, although they're from Italian backgrounds, the done thing was to try and speak English or to get them to speak English. So I think his grandmother or his or his mother found it quite embarrassing when her dad would just only speak Italian because right. she was saying we're Americans now so speak speak in English and I think this is a little bit of that playing out right. in in the story here because Corella as we know is a bit of um, an Ed McBain Evan Hunter stand-in isn't he? he's now yeah, yeah, in, in the books oh we think that you know I mean oh definitely definitely I think we're allowed to make that observation so I do like those little bits and pieces where you, you spot those things. There's a couple of interesting literary references in this as well. Oh, yeah. I'm going to go to the one that I mentioned to you, Morgan, because uh-huh. I didn't know it about it, which was to do with... Was that J.D. Salinger? It, it was, yeah. Where he lists yeah. all the... Uh... Yeah, yeah, so did, they're listing I the medicines, didn't know anything about it. and, and So I, was, I've, I must admit, I've only ever read Catcher in the Rye by Salinger. I was just leafing through my my copy of that and not really coming up with anything that made me think of that, apart from obviously it has quite a sort of fondness for just dropping in seemingly inconsequential detail and having dialogue that covers inconsequential sort of things to make everything seem naturalistic. So I was thinking, is it just a reference to that? But it seems seems a bit too on the nose for it just being that. Yeah, because essentially he's, Maya Maya's saying, because oh, he's writing down this list of, of pills, he's saying, oh, I could be J.D. Salinger doing this, writing yeah, down this, just a list of stuff. <laughs> so I, I, could, I, I had a little look around on assorted search engines and trying to find things about use of lists in Selinger in case that was a particular thing, but couldn't see anything about that. And ended up, um, I remembered that we have a copy of, uh, Fra- I never know if it's Franny and Zoe, Franny and Zoe in our flat. So I was just skim reading that. And I, I'm pretty sure I've hit the exact bit. That oh, it's excellent referencing. stuff. That's lucky. Franny and Zoe, um, which was top in the bestseller lists uh, circa 1961. So, so it's uh, been in his mind whilst, or yeah, been around while he was writing this? Definitely or a margin for. If I can read my, my scribble here. Yeah, it topped the New York Times bestseller list for 25 weeks. So. Blimey, so yeah, it must yeah. have been in the consciousness. So it's, it's a, a Mrs. Glass, who I think is the, the mother of the protagonists. Um, before her, in overtly luxuriant roles, was a host, so to speak, of golden pharmaceuticals, plus a few technically less indigenous whatnots. The shelves bore iodine, mercurochrome, vitamin capsules, dental floss, aspirin, anacin, bufferin, gyrol, musterol, exlax, milk of magnesia... Um, cell hepatica, aspergium, and then it goes on. But I ran out of room to to continue the list. I think you've the made list. the point. I think that was definitely got to be the, the reference that's the just exact taking the bit, out of. <laughs> <laughs> so that's. Yeah, I think it's just sort of a bit of McBain kind of shaking his head in disbelief that that's what you have to do to become critically acclaimed and top the New York Times bestseller list for twenty five <laughs> weeks. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I would, might have to do some more research see if I can find any. Um any indication of what McBain thought of <laughs> Salinger, but that's definitely a dig, isn't it? <laughs> Whether it's a, a deep and pointed dig, I don't know, or just a little a little jest, but... It seems fairly playful, but... Um... Yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. So that's that's clear, that one. How lucky you had the one book other than, than Catcher in the Rye. Yeah, in, in absolutely. The and just lucky that I happened upon it, because I, I didn't really have time to read the whole thing, but uh, yeah, there we go. The other sort of allusion to 
written stuff is there's a reference when Cotton Hawes and Christine Maxwell, his now-established girlfriend, although, just before I go into this, we were sort of discussing about the weird fact that Cotton Hawes took someone else away on this holiday in the last mm. book, in the, in the story, in, in Storm, and saying, well, that doesn't fit with the timeline. But really, reading this, it does say Cotton Hawes went and called Christine Maxwell, a girl he'd known for some years. He could have just taken someone away. There's In these stories, there's people always sort of... The idea of going steady or having a relationship, mm. I don't think Cotton Hawes taking someone away for a weekend means that he wasn't seeing Christine Maxwell right. well, at all. So I think the timeline stays. I think, it, yeah, it can, you can still definitely get away with keeping that timeline as is. Yeah. Knowing what we know of Cotton and his... Uh, and it may have been very on, <laughs> on again, off eye. again. You, never, you yeah. don't know. Well, even in this, with that witness he goes to see, he's kind of... <laughs> yeah. Oh, she's... Yeah, we'll come, we'll come to her in a bit, I think. Um, but, yeah, and one <laughs> of the scenes where where Cotton Hawes and Christine Maxwell are together, one of the first ones where she's sitting around in her underwear, teasing him. He makes a reference to UNESCO, which is how I pre- I'm assuming you pronounce it, I-O-N-E-S-C-O, UNESCO. Ever heard of UNESCO? Uh, vaguely, yeah. I don't know anything at all about him. But uh... I suspect if you taught drama, it might be a name that you might know. I'd never heard of it, but then I've never taught drama. Well, I've taught some drama. I've taught some drama, just not taught this. But yeah, UNESCO was a... I'm saying it now like UNESCO, like (laughs) UN. I'm trying to do that. UNESCO. 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 So Ian, anyway. (laughs) UNESCO. Well, yeah. He was a Romanian playwright. Uh, He was involved in the sort of the theatre of the absurd Mm. with Dardarist influences. Which is funny, actually, because I like Dada stuff and artwork and stuff, but I don't really know much about the things like playwrights. Mm. So maybe I've heard the name before. It did sort of ring a little bell. But that Theatre of the Absurd, which is like Samuel Beckett-type stuff, mm. isn't it, and things like that. But apparently, yeah, Ionesco had a, an epiphany when he was young in which all the light left him and he suddenly saw that the world was just decay, corruption and repetition designed to destroy the soul. I hate it when that happens. Yeah. So I'll try to work out how that related to Cotton Hawes trying to to um, get his leg over with, with Christine <laughs> Maxwell. But the only thing I could I could think of was I had a look. He, UNESCO wrote a play called Frenzy for Two or More. Frenzy for Two or More, in fact, it was called in 1962. That was around. I, I don't know if this is it. I'm, I'm I'm clutching at straws a little bit. But the play is described as being as it could be construed as an allegory. A stupid argument by a couple about whether a snail is different to a tortoise ends up in a war. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I don't know anything about UNESCO. If, if anyone really does know, then let me know. I like looking up these literary illusions. <laughs> it's, it's odd. Anyway. But yeah, of, of the incidental characters, there's basically there's one person who's an alibi, which is this woman called Marth. <coughs> I am sorry. It is like I'm going through puberty today, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. There's a woman called Martha Tamid, which Steve-O mentioned before, and Cotton Horse goes to see her. I mean, how would you describe her as a as a character, really? Well, she's sort of uh, the embodiment of dusky temptation, isn't she? Mm, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm to yeah. How does he describe her? She's like multinational. So she's like Turkish or something. Like but her her role in the book is to be the alibi for for Amos Barlow, who's the brother of the the guy who died in the flat. So him and, and, and the woman he was with were found on a bed, 
undressed except for their respective pants. So Amos Barlow is the brother of the man, Tommy Barlow, who's there, and um, yeah, this is he claimed he was with Martha Tamid. And when they go around to interview her, she's just she's a total come on. She's yeah. just really keen for cotton whores to stick around. <laughs> And she's just absolutely baffled that American men don't um, seize the day, as it were. <laughs> One of those interesting characters, really, that's got a, a different sort of temperament to a lot of the, the other characters they come across in their investigations. She's very much the, the opposite of the mother of the, the girl who's died, who is, <clears throat> who is a larger lady, but with sort of the, the spirit of a sort of small, delicate woman mm-hmm. trapped inside her. I was just trying to think of the the wacky character in this would be the uh, the guy who owns the flat hassler, is he called? Yeah. He's, oh, yeah. he's your kind of quasi-comedy kind of... Yeah, it's a very good image, the image of him when he first appears. So they obviously bring him in because he owns the flat that blows up. <laughs> so they brought him in, and the image of him in that first sequence, he's so happy to be inside a police precinct. <laughs> he's sort of... This big fella sat on a chair, his little legs dangling away, all this stuff's going on around him. And he's going around, I like to make movies, I've got this this colour Japanese film camera. Oh, could I come in here and shoot some pictures? Mm. All the while that there's some old drunk in in the cage in the corner who's pissed himself. No delicate way to put that, really. They try to foist off onto patrolman Dick Gennaro who brought him in. There's a couple of very good scenes in the actual precinct itself in the... In the squad room, where there's all sorts of colourful characters. I mean, he's the he's the main colourful character, mm. big fat man who's really excited by being interviewed by the police. I just see his little legs dangling off the chair <laughs> in excitement. Then he turns up later on to accuse the police of having nicked his nicked one of his films s- and some sleeping pills. Yeah, he accuses that either the police or the firemen. <laughs> yeah, he's like, like, why would why would you steal one film? It's, well, just apart from the weirdness that anyone would have had loads of reels of film in a mm. domestic setting in those days. Mm. It's odd that he he makes films, and it seems at one point like, oh, he makes films with yeah. his young yeah. man. Yeah. But they turn out just to be, he thinks he's like a filmmaker. He's just yeah. really yeah. excited. Because when I was reading that, I was thinking, oh, I, was it, yeah, were they... Dirty film. Dirty film. Well, then, yeah, that was my immediate assumption, and then it's like, oh, no, we, we invented this little plot with... Someone who we ran into in the park. Is it some kid he finds yeah. in the park? Because I recommend everyone tries this now. Get a film camera, go to the park and approach a child. See how far you get. <laughs> don't do that. Please, don't do that. Um, unless you're going to do it with a 1962 Japanese film camera. In which case, um, go ahead. It seems to have worked out all right for Fred Hassler, who, despite having his flat blown up, is quite happy to go back and move in. Like, <laughs> go yeah. in there. He's like, like oh, oh, the bedrooms or the kitchen's exploded. The bedroom's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's always, it's, it strikes me as quite funny that the the police are in there right at the beginning, even before they've stopped the gas leak. Yes, and even in those <laughs> days, I'm fairly sure that uh, that would have been considered quite reckless. Does he actually put? Yeah, I think they give him a mask to put on, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and the, the guy's still in there turning know. the gas off. <laughs> yeah, there's a few little bits of procedure which. Don't ring thoroughly true now to modern eyes, I don't think. No, but, uh, and maybe it would have been a bit of a stretch at the time, but if you were going to have to have a chapter where they waited around to be given permission, then the book hmm. would be longer and uh, not better for it. Uh, a little more ponderous. Indeed. Let me have a look at my little notes. Uh, I've got the word moustachectomy written down. 
Mustache. That's me. one of the other characters. He's not John Mustache. I remember him. It's <laughs> not a character who's a silly character like Fred Hassler, but he's the guy who's the insurance guy that they go to interview. Oh, and it, and the he's chap- constantly touching his lip. Yeah, it's an amazing touch. He's shaved his, his mustache off for the, a, a couple of days ago, and he's still not used to it. So he's constantly spending the time touching his upper lip because he's really aware of it, and it's like. You know, to him it feels like an ocean of skin on his face that he's not under. <laughs> but to anyone who's had a moustache or a beard for any amount of time and has then shaved it off will understand that sensation completely. But it's a really nice character touch for a character who's only there for one chapter or so. That he's, he's got this, this tick. Although, again, in, in terms of what people do and, and how people act, would you really give out all that detail to police without a warrant? I don't know whether they would have done in 1962. I can't say. But again, it would have slowed the story down if, oh. it, if they didn't do that. You know Corella on the phone to companies? He doesn't like doing it, does he? Because he, oh. he's always messed around. Yeah. This book's got the opposite of that at one point, which is really nice, <laughs> where he actually rings up... He's ringing around all these insurance companies and someone answers... And Carilla instantly takes a liking to him because he <laughs> he pronounces his name correctly the first time and he's really helpful. And you can see that Carilla's on the edge of like, it's going to be this again. It's going to be me being passed from pillar to post. They're going to get my name wrong. They're going to ask to call me back. They're going to ask to speak to the lieutenant. And actually the guy turns up and he's like, yeah, that's gets his name right. So it's like, oh, I feel good for Steve. He's lucky old Steve. <laughs> that's quite a nice touch, I think. It is, yeah. He deserves a, a good break occasionally, doesn't he? <clears throat> we better start pulling this all together really we've got a suicide at the start of the book we've got a flat exploding two bodies inside it they become the main case the suicide at the start is assumed to just be a suicide well it is because they see it happen Steve Carella who can't catch a break whilst investigating the main crime gets beaten up again he just can't stop being beaten up or shot mm. Yeah, he's not having a great time of it, really, is he? It makes you wonder whether he's that good a cop <laughs> eventually. <laughs> we read him and really like him, but maybe he's just rubbish. <laughs> Beaten up twice in this book, in fact. Yeah. But the second time he catches this, his, his assailant, and I like the fact that he's he's picked up by someone who's trying to get him to a hospital, and he's just shouting, No hospital! He's so determined to get this back, this guy back to the Drinking squadron. blood all over the place. Yeah. Miss Colo's telling him off for yeah. and, and making him go and sort himself out. So, yeah, there's a funny little plot that sort of vanishes and then dips back in, you know, into the story and then goes off again, just to keep Corella out of the way. And then we've got, ultimately, this is solved by... A striptease. <laughs> Which, you know, it'd be lovely if every crime was solved by someone <laughs> taking their clothes off. It would, I don't know, we'd have a very different police force, I think. <laughs> Certainly. <clears throat> How do we feel about the resolution of this, then? Uh, mm, uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, maybe a bit, uh, yeah, two plus two when he gets ten, doesn't he, somehow? Gets, I don't know, he just kind of... He wins Bully's special prize. Yeah, just a bit, uh, maybe a bit stretching plausibility, really. But uh, I suppose, it, it, yeah, it's not necessarily... It more kind of twigs about the character traits of yeah. the person so, so. Who, who who is like, ah, you know, a lot of the random stuff. Um, the character, Mrs. Um, Martha Tamid as well, 
she's suddenly quite an important character, isn't she? Because of something she said when yeah. was, she's been found after Kling's like done his observation. Basically, Kling's main job is in this book is to be sent off to do an observation for about six pages of the book. In fact, it's more than six pages. It's a huge bit, yeah. which is just typed up notes of Kling's observation. There's mm. a few sections of this book which are like six pages, ten pages of, of forensic details, typed up observation notes, diagrams, yeah. toxicology reports. There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot. And then the uh, the confession at the end as well. Yeah, typed type. up confession. Which is the start of that really happening, I think, because more and more the books have a confession chapter at the end, don't they, which explains mm. the the motives of the character. But yeah, it's it's a bit odd that the it's... It's Christine Maxwell doing a little striptease for Cotton Whores. Makes him think of something that brings it all together. Purely for the purposes of research, I had to look up garter belts wow. on the internet. Okay? <laughs> okay. Because I was... I've been a little bit baffled by how this ends. <clears throat> I see my voice is cracking now. and it's, It is just because my voice is funny, not because I'm getting excited about garter belts. <laughs> <laughs> it's... An odd thing, because the solving of the crime relies on the idea of whether someone wears their garter belt over or under their panties. We can't say pants because they're trousers in American stories. And I'm not entirely sure that it works that way. I would have... I don't know. It's... I'm... Sad to say I haven't enough experience with garter belts to to proffer an opinion on this one, really, but... Take his word for him. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm sure... uh, I'm sure he knew what he was talking about anyway. Uh, on the subject of panties, well, I can't wait to discuss the covers of our various editions of this book and see whether yours are as good as mine. OK, we need to really get this summed up, I think, and give it a score as well. Ooh. I suppose uh, Kenneth is working all right in this heat. He's, you know, bits of him have gone soft, but he's, he's still <laughs> operating at full capacity, so I'll just make sure he's... Have a look at the, well, in fact, I'll get the Steve print to... Out. Report on the. Could you perhaps report on the scores for the last three or four books, Steve? So the uh, the Kenneth Score Archive. <laughs> yeah, well. The archive. We're in a massive downward trend at the oh, moment. Oh no. We, we've we've not. We've one, two, three, four, five. The last five books are, are showing a distinct downward trend. Uh, it's kind of spelling. Whoa. <laughs> He's reading a graph wham. here and trying to make letters. It says out wham of it. at the moment. If you can imagine the pe- peaks and troughs. If you want to look at this, you can find it on our blog, which has got the list of all the books, all the adaptations, and, and, and various things on there, and the links to all the episodes, some other material, and Kenneth's actual digital output as well. Yeah, so the Empty Hours is the lowest scoring to date at 67 Police Shields. Yeah, that's because it didn't hold didn't, together as a novel. Did no, it? I didn't get one's yeah. juices going. It was, it was a bit. It's the type of thinking about that one again. You, it could be very easily not a eighty seventh precinct. You could just change all the character names, and you wouldn't even for a minute think this is an eighty seventh precinct with the character names change. Potentially, yeah. Mm. Certainly more on perhaps the the last story. That's yeah. Ski. That's silly um, yeah. Ski that that could be anyone, couldn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and Any cop going on holiday. Or anyone, I suppose. Right, and we've yet we've not had the dizzying heights of eighty nine since a king's ransom. Yeah, that's still still our peak, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, cop hater. We were very high with the first one. I think we were a bit giddy. Well, you know, it's it's an important milestone, and I think it's it deserves a high score. 
It's yeah. the big. It's the big first flagpole, isn't it? Definitely, the, the first big flagpole indeed. <laughs> right. Okay. So you are you happy you've uh, yeah yeah re- yeah refreshed yeah, your yeah. your Kenneth thing. Go on, Steve. While you've got that there, you can be the the man to start your summing up and awarding of points. I do like the procedural nature of it, and the lots of diagrams. And I do like the fact that rereading it, I couldn't remember who'd done it because you've got about three yeah. principal people it might be, and it kind of teases you with potential motives from them all. So I will score it well, but I don't think I'll be in the dizzying heights of no. some of the others because some reason it kind of yeah doesn't quite tick all the boxes. Anyway, I'm waffling here. <laughs> um, so I'm going. We're to... all very stroppy in this heat, aren't we? We're all a bit. Yeah, like, I'm going yeah. to be low seventy. I, I think I'll be about seventy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there you go. He's, he's picked a nice... Seven out of ten. It's a seven out of tenner. Okay, that's, that's fine. I move over to Morgan for his uh, assessment. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I kind of feel very similar. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, some some great procedural stuff, some nice character bits. I feel, yeah, there's a couple of bits of slightly less than perfectly worked out plotting and the resolution doesn't ring as true to me as I'd like mm-hmm. um, I'm just not convinced that much about either the way it's worked out or the motivation particularly which does drag it down a little bit for me so I'm going to go for 72. Yeah because you're right on, on, the, on the motivation even in the typed up confession at the end even he admits he's not really sure I mean, why it's all right, it's okay. I suppose some, you know, crimes are committed <laughs> by people who don't really know why they've they've done things, but it seems like a lot of a lot of effort to go to without knowing why you're doing a thing. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's an odd one. Yeah, but, well, I, I agree more or less with all of those points as well. It's funny because there's some really nice character stuff mm. in this with the cops that I like. I do always like the way he seeds a little bit more into the, the yeah. backgrounds of them. Because he doesn't expect you to take them away like like a Sherlock Holmes or a, you know, perhaps someone like Rebus in the ranking books. You're not expected to have that level of no. relationship with the cops. But it's nice to have. It's nice to have that little bit extra to just keep adding to the picture. So stuff like the, the naval history stuff. The stuff like the Maya Maya story keeps advancing yeah. every time you hear it. So it doesn't just become pure repetition. I like that stuff. But by the same t- token, as I mentioned earlier, some of the Corella bits are a bit odd in this one, mm. I think. There's a really clumsy thing where he's, he tells the, the girl at the start about, oh, is it because you've got your period? And that feels really... I mean, we're a lot more open about talking about these things now, and it may have been quite bold for him to say that at the time, but it feels very, very yeah. clumsy and very sort of heavy-handed. And the idea that she would just sort of go, how did you know... Uh, is rather than punch him in the face. (laughs) (laughs) It's an entirely different sort of thing. Yeah, that whole sequence, the characterisation of uh, Corella there just does seem a bit off, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know why. It just, that's the weakest point of it for me, really, is that. But I'm going to award it. I think I'm going to to slip a little bit lower down to a 68, I think. So I'm going to just check how Kenneth views that information. 
Well, in a similar ballpark, I think. Yeah, it's... It, I'll take a wild guess, it's 70. You, with no rounding upwards required. <laughs> it's like you've heard of maths before. <laughs> <laughs> right, it is, it's 70. 70 police shields. 70. Yeah, that's what it is. Okay, well, we'll let Kenneth cool down a little bit before we do our bonus episode, during which we will answer some listener questions. We have some. What's the next one we're doing? The next book we're doing is 10 plus 1, which I have not read. Nor have I. So I'm looking forward to coming to this I have, but I can't remember (laughs) what. This is the only one I've got for a long stretch that I've not read before. Um, I think it's probably up until the mid-late 70s that I get to the next stretch where I've not read any of them. I own all these books, but I am deliberately holding off reading them so as we're doing them in order. So I look forward to that. I'm also, in the next couple of weeks, going to be in New York itself. Do a bit of McBaining while I'm there, have a look around, see if I can soak up some of the vibe, and maybe uh, bring a, a treat back for our listeners from New York. More on that when it is sorted out. But in the meantime, I'm going to say goodbye, and I'm going to hand over to my friends to say goodbye, so I will say goodbye. Goodbye. Fairly well. <laughs>